0: Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missy Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. What's up, JR? Hey, Doug. Good to see you again.
1: Always good to be with you here on on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, man. We certainly have gone through quite a few weeks. We thought the pandemic was uh, big enough. But we're certainly hitting some other elements that are incredible disruptors.
0: Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, what what's running through your head and heart these days? Oh my goodness! Well. Uh, uh- I think a bunch of things. For me, it really happened a few weeks ago. We had one of those really violent wind storms in our in our little neighborhood, and I remember I just got off a really difficult call um, with a few folks in our church, just talking about um, just like racism and the heaviness and the burden, and like what, what's our response and what do we do, and just feeling super heavy, and literally like branches are flying in my yard. I'm like <laughs> a storm too. Like, are you serious? Am I literally living in in that Forrest Gump version, where like Lieutenant Dan's shaking his fist, like, is that all you've got? Like, come on. Stop.
1: I love that you just went from like heavy issues to a Forrest
0: Gump uh, metaphor, dude, because it felt like it. It was like, it's man, it was crazy. But I think that's just it. Is um, ooh, it's it's just been heavy. I feel like our. Um, yeah, just a lot of deep sighs in my spirit in the last mm. few weeks, and and I think it 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 really, you know, you hear people say things like seminary doesn't prepare us for some of these things, and and I think you know nothing really prepares us for this kind of stuff. It's like. It's almost like um, I, I had someone gave me a book a couple of years ago called "The Worst Case Scenarios," and it's just yeah. like a joke of a book. But I feel like I could probably write a chapter on. That and now. You're like, is that fiction or not? Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading a biography right now. <laughs>
1: um, it reminds me of the this meme. There's this like woman like squinting with her hands on her knees. I may have even sent it to you. And she said, "Here's a picture of me looking outside to see what chapter
0: of Revelation we're doing yeah. today." <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we and we laugh because we're gonna cry if we don't. Yeah. That's exactly um, right. Yeah, exactly right. I, I honestly feel like one of the, one of the things that has been really good is, uh, just the, the consistent meeting with my spiritual director. Yeah. Um, yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, the one thing that was really helpful is I was just sharing about where I was at and, um, you know, I, I know, you know, Jared, but, uh, I was planning to have a sabbatical starting the end of June and that yeah. has been postponed to next summer. Um, and so it's, it's been hard. I think there's just been, uh, I, 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 Use the word grief like it's really been just a grief, and it's been two years in the making, and it'll be three years by the time it gets there. But I'm also super grateful that I don't have to go through more isolation and isolation. Mm. So there are some really mm. great things too. But the one thing that my spiritual director did is he said, Well, let's think about the five stages of grief. And, you know, he's like, you know, denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. And it's like, I was able to put, like, yeah, I'm depressed. Like, I'm in the depression space. And, Mm. and it's not, not clinically. That's, that's not a clinical. It's just like, I just, the weight of it just feels super heavy. And so, but, yeah. But even, you know, we've said this before on the show, like naming it has a way of taming it. And so I think that was that was one of those things, like more personally. And I think part of that is because um, it's just, the, the season feels like it's there's no such thing, it feels like there's no such thing as a small decision right now. And it also feels like we have to be hyper aware of every word we say, of every, you know, action we make and things like that. And so mm-hmm. I feel like um, another thing that he said, it was really helpful, he said, when our emotional immune system is worn out, uh, we will tend to make, to, to, to hold the small things and behold them as big things. Mm. And I mm. feel like that was very helpful for me to recognize like, Oh, right. My emotional health is pretty tattered at the moment. Mm. And my sense is everyone's emotional health is pretty tattered at the moment. And like, we think about in, in in healthy days of working in church ministry, uh, you know, I know Jr. You and I would use the word. You know, we talk about emotional intelligence a lot, and it's like no one is emotionally intelligent right now, or at least very few people are, because we're emotionally worn out. And so that <laughs> just felt like a gift, just to sit and like, oh wow. And it also became an invitation to realize that. I think the most some of the most significant work pastors can do in this season is to continue to work their life-giving list to continue to work their self-care to to build into their friendships and mm. to realize that like we don't carry this stuff alone mm. and I think the enemy wants to lie And tell us that we're all alone and we have to come up with the answers and figure this whole thing out. So,
1: yeah, Yeah, I was just on a coaching call literally right before coming on to record this and we just asked the question, which we've asked many times you and I before of each other, of ourselves, of other leaders. You know, what lies are you tempted to believe in this season? And it just opened up this whole can of conversation and space where he had not processed before. And I just think that's important for us to process in the season. You know, what lies am I tempted to believe? Because naming lies has a way of changing lives. Mm. And I just think that's really important that we were doing that. And just acknowledging the tension. There's just so much going on. There's I, I just can't think uh, you know, and we'll talk about this in our conversation with Sky, but you know, the the great disruption that we thought was the pandemic, but you include a virus uh, collapsed economy, and racial justice issues across our country. Um, those are three huge disruptors, which one by themselves is enough to cause interruption and disruption in massive ways. But you put all three together and that's a social and cultural upheaval. And I think that's really important. And I'm glad that Sky is going uh, to be
0: addressing some of that in our conversation here. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. What are some things that you feel like are just helpful for pastors to know right now, JR? Well, I
1: think the uh, something that Lacey Borgo said that continues, we've said this a couple of times on the podcast, but it continues to stay with me. As she said, be as gracious and as patient with yourself as God is with you. Mm. I've had, I found myself looking at, at uh, pastors, you know, mostly on Zoom now because of the virus, but uh, looking them in the eye and telling them that, and many of them crying. Mm. Um, and I think that we, this is a space where a lot of pastors are flogging themselves. They're just, we're just beating ourselves up, saying, we're not blank enough. We're not this enough. We're not good enough. We're not spiritual enough. We're not pastoring well enough. And I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And right. And we should all over ourselves, as we've said before. And so it, I just think that we have to just extend grace that, you know, the pressure's off because the tomb is empty mm. and that the gospel applies to us as well. And uh, so I, th- I think that's the big one. I'm not sure it's a lot of new information. I think it's a lot of being reminded of the truth uh, that we know, but we sometimes lose focus or we forget. Mm. So how about you, Doug? What, what are some other things that you're hearing as you maybe coach with leader coach leaders, or as you talk with with those within the church,
0: yeah, I I think the the pressure thing, the should you know shooting all over ourselves thing seems to really be resonating right now. Um, I I think too one of the things that I'm hearing a lot of is people feeling like what is it, what does it look like to appropriately engage the social media conversation right now as a Mm. pastor. And Mm. like, it's, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I have zero answers. Uh, you know, me, I'm, I'm not a big social media guy. Like I'll log on once a year. And if it's someone's birthday, it's like, Hey, happy birthday. Um, but, in some ways it it is an interesting place. And and I think it's a place I need to grow in just in terms of understanding like how that works and what that is. But I've just, yeah, I was talking with someone the other day and it was really interesting. He just said, like, I know my private life, but what does it look like to publicly be a person of peace in this season? And it was just, it was, you know, I thought, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole separate set of pressures that I don't think pastors even 10 years ago, we're necessarily thinking about like, what does it look like to have that present? Like, what does presence look like there? And even like what, you know, and even saying this isn't really presence there, or like, how do we have that healthy conversation? And we should probably just have Jay Kim back on and he can tell us all (laughs) the answers. Just like, go analog, man, go analog. (laughs) But yeah, I, I think that that's something I'm, I'm hearing. Um, I think too, just, you know, like that idea of gentleness, like what does it look like Mm -hmm. to just be gentle? And even I think stuff that we've also heard Lacey and other spiritual directors uh, and folks that we know say from the perspective of like, we have to be people, pastors in this season need to be attenders and not fixers. Like, So we attend and bear witness, but we're not the fixers. Like we Mm -hmm. can't fix these things and i think too it's almost like we just need to be ready to to be in in the in the long haul journey of healing ourselves and as we as we help others heal too mm. and so i think there's just a lot of healing that needs to take place right now as well mm.
1: Sky Jitani is an award-winning author, speaker, consultant, and pastor. He also serves as the co-host of the very popular Holy Post podcast, a weekly show that blends astute cultural and theological insights with comical conversation for over a decade sky served in numerous editorial and executive roles at christianity today an organization started by billy graham most specifically as editor of leadership journal he's still a featured preacher at ct's preaching today he's the author of many books including one immeasurable which i require in one of my seminary courses He also just released a new book titled, What If Jesus Was Serious? A Visual Guide to the Teachings of Jesus We Love to Ignore. We'll get into that conversation here. As a fan of questions and a visual learner, I love this book because it's prophetic, intriguing, engaging, and provocative, all while trying to help us learn to follow Jesus as he was intended to be followed. We've had him on the podcast before, and it's good to have him back. Enjoy this conversation with our friend, Sky Jitani. Well, Sky, it's good to have you back on. You hold the distinguished honor of being our first ever guest here on the podcast, season one, episode two. So it's good to have you back here today.
2: I'm glad to know you're still around after having me on.
1: <laughs> you made it. <laughs> well, and you also get to follow N.T. Wright. So congratulations on that. So, uh, so many honors that you've put on me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we know just as we talked before we press record here that uh, the world is a different place. And you said it's just like trying to predict the weather in the midst of a storm. And so uh, what we're not asking you to do is to be a futurist or to look into some crystal ball. But maybe as we see it today, and this is June 10th, a few days before uh, we have this live, what are you noticing thus far in terms of over the last few months as it relates to church here in North America?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, Normally, I'm traveling a lot, so I get a better feel of what's going on around the country, but I haven't been anywhere since early March, right? Like everyone else, I've been shut down. Um, I think there's kind of three different categories that churches are falling into right now. One category is just total denial that everything is going to go back to normal and we just have to ride this out. The second category, which is probably the largest, is we need to make temporary adjustments, and in the next year, two years, maybe we'll be back to normal. And then there's a smallest third category, which is this is an opportunity to fundamentally rethink and change what we're doing. Uh, Based on my personality and you know me and my writings well enough that I'm in favor of that third category, but I don't think that enough people are there yet, and and it's going to depend on how long this genuinely lasts. I just saw a report today that. COVID cases are escalating, I think, in 20 of the 50 states. So there's a real concern now with everyone loosening up restrictions. Obviously, all the protests going on in urban areas that it's spreading much more quickly. And we could find our, our chain getting yanked and uh, moving backwards in the coming months. I hope that's not the case. But I don't think we're going to see more churches and church leaders wrestling with really systemic change if this if the worst is behind us. They'll write yes, it out and they'll go yes. back to the way it was. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons to rethink the way we're doing things apart from any pandemic. So the pandemic was just forcing people to into the conversation that you and I and others have been having for a long time. But we'll see. I just I don't know yet soon to really be a, a hinge point or not. Mm-hmm. So
1: what about those churches that are in that middle category of, Oh, it'll just, you know, we'll kind of snap back to normal. What would you want to encourage leaders and pastors who are in that to say, Hey, this is a good time to be in that third category of really thinking about why are we really doing what we're doing? And is there a better way to do it? What would you want to challenge or encourage them to think if to move from one category to the next?
2: Well, um, Pandemic or no pandemic, there are monumental changes that have occurred over the last twenty years in culture, in technology, um, in all kinds of areas, and most churches have not ad- adapted to that. Really, maybe they're podcasting a sermon now or some you know little fringe changes like that, but they're not really rethinking it. The core question I would want any pastor, any church leader, to ask is: given the resources and tools available to us right now. Given the mission field to which we are called, the culture and the people to which we are called, what is the most faithful way to make disciples of Jesus Christ? I think they've had to ask that a little bit in the midst of this pandemic. They couldn't just say, oh, well, people can't come on Sunday, so we're stopping or giving up. They've, they've adapted. They've figured out how to do things online. They use Facebook, Zoom, whatever they're doing. You know, They're mobilizing lay leaders to check in on members and care for them. There's a lot of innovative and creative work going on because of this pandemic. I would just want them to take a step back and, and ask, what would it mean to employ those same questions for larger societal changes? apart from this pandemic? And is the way we're, we've been doing things the most faithful way to do it? And in some cases, it may the answer may be yes, but I think in a lot of cases, they may open their eyes to other possibilities. And I think in a lot of ways, we are more married to the systems we've inherited than we are to the mission we've inherited. That's number mm-hmm. one. And number two, I think the system we've inherited benefits pastors and church leaders more than it benefits the laity, and we need to mm. we need to rethink that and be willing to sacrifice some of the systems that we prefer in order to incorporate the ones that are best at serving the people we're called the shepherd. Those are the core questions.
1: Mm. Yeah, let me play devil's advocate here, and then and then I want to let Doug jump in and ask some questions. But devil's advocate, um, okay, Sky. Uh, mentally, cognitively, I totally agree with you but I'm exhausted. I've just gone through trying to navigate a pandemic and do church Mm -hmm. online. And now we've got race issues and my people are panicking. I'm exhausted. I don't have the energy to provide more change right now. What would you want to say to pastors who are feeling that right right uh, now?
2: Well, I I sympathize. I get it. I, I think the pastors are, a lot of church leaders are carrying a very, very heavy load right now, but I mean, not, not to be insensitive to that. Part of the reason this load is so heavy is because you have, you have, resisted changing up to this point and it's a little bit like saying i mean dallas willard used to use this in the metaphor um it's a little bit like telling somebody go run a marathon today right you can't you can't run 26 miles today if you haven't trained for it and that's where i that's why i think the exhaustion is coming from and this covid thing may blow over the protests may go away um the economic crisis may recover and we may go back to the way things were, but we're just putting off the eventual marathon that's going to kill us because we're not training for it right now. So I get it. You're mm-hmm. tired, you're exhausted, but part of uh, being faithful, you know, it isn't just faithful to a mission. It's faithful. to, It's faithfulness to the people that God has entrusted to us. And mm-hmm. part of that means reexamining the systems we've inherited. And if you haven't been willing to do that up to this point, you can't just say well it's too too it's too exhausting for me to do that now there's there's never a good time to rethink stuff or you know an ideal time where it's going to be easy but in a, in some way your people are probably more open to change right now because of the crisis than they will be 3 years from now when it's completely behind us and you go okay all that crisis is behind us now let's change things i mean Rahm Emanuel said this back in two thousand eight when he was the mm-hmm. chief of staff for Barack Obama, and he got a lot of flack for it. But he said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yeah, no. And <laughs> I In, I fully a, in agree. a way that we're in a crisis, and I don't think we should waste it. And maybe a more spiritual way of putting it is C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis that you know, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the pain the church is facing right yeah. now may be God's way of rousing us to thinking more creatively and faithfully about our mission. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really helpful, sky. I, I I get a sense that you're talking about two two very different things that overlap really well within the church. Like the first thing is just the system, right? like what what we do. And the second question that I, I sense you're raising is well, well, who like what is church? Um, so mm-hmm. could you speak to those two different sort of paradigm shifts that you see taking place or that that we have an opportunity to see take place?
2: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And those two things are interrelated because how you define church uh, backs you into the methodology you're going to engage to to be the church. So uh, probably the best way to look at this is the, the, for most Protestant evangelical communities, the way we think about church is something we inherited from 500 years ago. It's from the Protestant Reformation, and it's a preaching-centric Teaching centric, large group gathering, mostly on Sunday morning, but whenever. And it's very pastor centric because the teacher becomes the centerpiece of that community. And there's a lot of good in that. There's a lot we've, uh, it was a necessary and really helpful correction to some of the nonsense that was going on in the medieval church at the time. But it's not the only way to do it. Bible teaching is essential to our discipleship, people need it to be grounded in their faith and to grow in their faith. That's a non-negotiable in my view, but does it have to happen in a large group gathering on Sunday morning? Does it have to be delivered through the same teacher every time? Um, Is that the only effective way to disseminate biblical content? And the, deeper question is, does biblical content, does information alone lead to transformation? And there's been an enormous number of studies that show both secular and Christian that that's not the case. So while it's an essential ingredient, it can't be the only ingredient. And while it has effectively been delivered for 500 years through preaching on Sunday morning, it's not the only way to deliver it. And I'm not here to tell everybody what the right answer is. It's going to depend on your community, on your setting and all that. But I don't think we should just assume that's the only way to do it and therefore not rethink it. So that's the methodology piece. The deeper question of what is the church, if you think of the church as most of us know it's not the building, uh, it's not even an event on Sunday. But if we think of it as a 501c3 organization with the budgets and the programming and the leaders and all that, if that's our definition of church, it's also going to severely limit what we believe uh, it ought to be doing. Once we have a biblical definition of it's it's the people of God who've been redeemed by Him and are living in communion with Him and each other for the sake of the world. If that's our understanding of church, it opens up an enormous number of possibilities for what that can look like and how can it can be expressed. Again, depending on your environment and setting, I'm not here to prescribe a one size fits all solution. We just need to kind of have a more sanctified imagination about the possibilities. And I know there are people around the country doing really interesting things even before COVID. Um, I just hope that this uh, difficult time kind of leapfrogs us forward in our thinking and what that could be. At the end of the day, it's it's not about being relevant. It's not about being trendy. It's not about leveraging technology in different way. It's about faithfully serving the people we're called to serve and in, and helping them grow deeper in their communion with Christ and their and using their gifts for the sake of the world. That's what it's about. And however that looks in your community, as long as you're asking those questions and you're faithfully pursuing it, I'm going to shut up and let you do it. But if you're not asking those questions, mm. that's what gets me fired up. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, we're circling around this issue of church ink, right? Which you talk about in immeasurable. So and I love that book. I mentioned in, we, recorded your bio just a moment ago and just talk about how that's a required book in this, my seminary class that I teach. So the idea of church ink, unpack what church ink is for those who have not read immeasurable and why it has devastating consequences on our soul and maybe even the world around us right now, if we perpetuate the machine of church ink.
2: Yeah. I think one of the metaphors I use in that book, it's been a couple of years now is um, if if life in community with God's people and and in communion with Him is like standing in the open sunlight, Church Inc. is exchanging that experience for going to the tanning bed salon in the strip mall down the road, right? It's this contained, commodified, artificial experience that someone can make a buck off of. And the christian life we're called to is one lived in communion with each other and with god and pastors and church leaders exist to come alongside and equip us for that life for that uh for the things necessary to cultivate that kind of existence but when church becomes an, a corporation or a, a consumeristic experience pastors and church leaders go from equipping people to live that way to commodifying it into a business and it's come and we will dispense the religious goods and services that you desire. And it's just, it's life killing. It's deadening. It it sucks out the mystery and power from the Christian life. And I'm not anti-structure. I'm not anti-worship service. I'm not anti-501c3s by any means. But I, I am against the idea that the entire Christian life can be commodified into some kind of um, industry. And unfortunately, that's what we do to everything in a consumeristic society. So it shouldn't surprise us that we do that to faith as well. Mm
0: Yeah, and I think there's there's such I, I love that term you used earlier uh, sanctified imagination, and I think, I think really what happens is when we look at our faith uh, and and how we've done church in the past as this commodified you know this driven idea of we can create these tanning beds all over the place and everyone can get their stuff. Like I appreciate how a lot of that is done with this really sincere love for people, but yet I think yeah. and and I, I like how how in the book you talk about the idea of mystery, and I feel. Like what happens in that is that mystery is that space where where we start to see. Um, uh, I've heard Len Sweet use the the, the term uh, artisan churches or artisan communities that are that are just embodying the gospel in really different ways. So, what are some things that you're noticing right now that seem very artisan um, that that you could share with us? Hmm.
2: Uh, that seem artisan. You know, it's pretty hard to to connect artisan with technology because we just see those things as opposed to each other um one of the things i find really encouraging even in my own community is you know when you've decentralized church the way we have right now because of covid it doesn't minimize the needs that people have it doesn't minimize the pastoral care and other more tangible needs that people have but you can't gather people now in a in a church building to disseminate those resources. So what it's required is for individual Christians to look out for their neighbors. It means, and we've had people at my church, for example, who have taken shifts in touching base with everybody who lives by themselves from our community to make sure, are you doing okay? Or if if they're immune compromised or older, can we help you get groceries? You know, all the different things. And that, when that's, for me, that's artisan church right it's people on people it's life on life it's it's not centralized it may, it may be in some ways centralized in its um organization or facilitation but it's it's ultimately disseminated out to people to to do that work and it isn't a program it's not uh packaged and branded and sold like come to this thing and, and that to me feels better it feels more organic and you know we can you talk to anybody and ask them about what what were some of the most powerful and meaningful transformative experiences of your Christian life. And very, very few people identify a program. Mm. And if they do identify a program, they usually identify a person or relationship through that program that was transformative. Mm. So we just need to have that imagination opened beyond what we can package and figure out how do we I think I talk about this in a measurable, but at the end of the day, the greatest resource that God has given the world are his spirit filled people. And that's what ultimately we as leaders are responsible for equipping and unleashing. So the more we keep them bound up into these institutional frameworks that make us feel happy, the less they are out engaging the world around us and the people around us. So um, anything that moves those people out into the world and, and empowers them, I see as artists. Anything that contains them and restricts them, I see as industrial. Mm. And it's satisfying to the people running the industry. It's not very good at accomplishing what God actually wants done.
1: talking a lot about Immeasurable and that's a great book, but you have a brand new one out and I'm thrilled for your book that just came out. And uh, so I wanted you to unpack, I want you to unpack that a little bit more for us. Um, But the idea of what if Jesus was serious, just start with the title. Tell us what do you mean by the title before you jump into the content of the book itself?
2: Yeah, it came from uh, my experience teaching a class years and years ago. Uh, A Sunday morning class at my church with a bunch of adults. Christian men and women who've been probably in the evangelical world most of their lives. And it was all on the Sermon on the Mount. And the first day of class, we read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then I simply asked the adults in the class, how many of you think Jesus was serious? That he actually expects us to live out these commands? And I was kind of shocked when of the 30 or 40 people in the class, nobody raised their hand. Wow. And... And so finally I asked, well, why, okay, if you don't think Jesus was serious, how do you, what do you make of this sermon? And I started hearing what I, what I recognized as regurgitated messages they'd heard about the Sermon on the Mount over the course of their Christian lives. Things like, well, no one can really live this way because it's impossible. And Jesus is just using this sermon as uh, a way of uncovering our need for grace because nobody can do this. Or... If you really live this way, you know, if you forgive your enemy and all these other countercultural commands, you're going to be destroyed by the world and, and this doesn't work. And, you know, it's clearly hyperbole. I was hearing all these excuses. And what struck me was numerous things. But the biggest one was the sermon ends with the parable of the wise and foolish builder. And. And someone brought that up in the class. And, and we, we had that silly little Sunday school children's song about, you know, building your house on the rock and all that. Go ahead that. and sing and, it. We'd love it. No, no.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what, what, what got me about this, again, talking to these adults was they took that parable and, and said, well, this is about being a Christian or a non-Christian. If you're a Christian, you're building your house on the rock. Wow. If you're a non-Christian, you're building your house on the sand. And then I said, no, 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 let's read it again. Read the parable, what does Jesus say? He says, the person who does what I have commanded is building their house on the right. Yeah. In other words, he was serious that he expects us to live out these commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And he even ends the message with this parable saying, This is how important it is that you do it. And yet all these Christians in the church, their whole life, had been taught all these excuses for not doing what Jesus taught. Yeah. So that's really where the book came from is it's an exploration of the Sermon on the Mount and How would our posture as Christians in this culture be different if we took him seriously? And the argument I make in the introduction is maybe the reason our culture doesn't take Jesus seriously is because they see that we don't. And that's kind of the crux of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. So why do you feel like, um, just in all the stuff that we have going on right now, why do you feel like this is so important for the church?
2: Uh, you know, well, I think one of the big takeaways from what's going on, forget COVID right now, although it's related, but when you look at what's going on with the police, what's going on with the government, um, the riots and protests, at its core, I think a big, big piece of it is that a lot of the structures of our society have lost their moral authority. Right. The police are only able to do their job effectively if they have moral authority, if people trust them. When they no longer have moral authority to tell you to do something, that's when they have to use force. Right? That's when the only authority becomes the fact that they have a gun or they're carrying a stick or riot gear. When When the government loses moral authority, they can't get up and say, hey, this virus is dangerous and we need to social distance and wear masks. People go, oh, who knows? Who cares? You're no authority. I can do whatever I want. And you have the problems we have. And I think the same thing is going on with the church. A lot of the church has lost its moral authority for various reasons, but at its center, because what we proclaim we believe, they don't see. And it isn't just the normal run-of-the-mill hypocrisy that we all have in our lives to a certain degree. When they see um, established, uh, platformed Christian leaders saying things like, um, you don't really have to turn the other cheek, and in fact, we want to vote for people who are going to beat up the bullies in our lives – you're losing moral authority. So at the end of the day, this, this is a crisis that the whole culture, the whole society is facing. But if we as the church can't figure this out and reclaim the moral authority by actually seeking to live like Jesus, then the whole, the whole thing is in trouble.
1: So the book is about moral authority. How do we take Jesus seriously? But you do it in a prophetic, but very whimsical way. And we were talking about this before we recorded, um, and we've been, if anybody's been following you on social media for a while, you know, you post these drawings that you're making, these doodles that are really good. I'm, I'm actually shocked. I've known you for a handful of years. I did not know you knew how to doodle and draw so well. Um, but talk about the seriousness of the title and the seriousness of the topic met, met with these whimsical drawings and these sort of visual representations. How did you come about sort of melding the, the, the two ideas together?
2: Uh, when I wrote my book with, which came out in 2011, is far my best-selling book. And that book h- contained a handful of really, really simple, small doodles, kind of back of the napkin stick figure doodles. And I realized that they really resonated with people. When and there's a lot of people in our society who learn visually, they're not primarily readers or uh, audio learners; they're visual learners. And so when I realized that, that's when I started doing more and more of these doodles. And so, what if Jesus was serious? And it contains short readings because I realized people's attention spans are, are very short. But I, then I thought, I, if I really want to get the message out, I, I need to have a visual component to it. And I'm uh, too cheap to pay an illustrator to do really good stuff, so I had to figure out how to do it myself. And when you think about social media, Instagram, even Twitter, uh so much of the communication that happens there is visual, and so I kind of found myself just as a teacher realizing I need to figure this out and come up with other ways mm. of communicating these ideas.
0: Mm.
1: Do you teach that way? Do you are you constantly drawing when you're speaking or
2: teaching or preaching somewhere? Not constantly, no. I mean, it depends on the setting. When I'm when I'm strictly preaching, then no. Uh, in fact, my preferred way to preach is not to use any visuals at all, which is completely. Countercultural. Uh, mm. When I get invited places, everyone's like, Where's your PowerPoint? We haven't gotten your PowerPoint. Like, I hate PowerPoint. I don't want to use it. Um, <laughs> sometimes, if I'm doing more of an interactive teaching session, I will use uh, a whiteboard or flip chart or an iPad and project up there. And I'll doodle a lot there and use illustrations that way, but typically not for preaching. I think one of the things we've really lost in much of the church is the ability to listen well. And to mm-hmm. reflect well, because we're just overstimulated by so much going on, so my preference would be, especially in a Sunday gathering of worship, is to slow things down and have less stimulation and more quiet mm-hmm. and more reflection. But if it's in an interactive teaching environment, then I tend to use you know a marker and a flipboard, and i'm I'm a happy camper. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. fascinating, fascinating So with all that we have going on the first half of twenty twenty, I know when you write a book, you have to submit it early. Uh, you know, several months before it comes out. So what we know now about 2020 in the world, would you have done anything differently with the book? Would you have written anything or changed anything knowing what we know now?
2: Uh, that's a great question. I mean, obviously some of the illustrations may have been different, uh, more contemporary. There is one bit that I've wrestled with, and that is that Jesus talks about anger in the Sermon on the Mount and the danger of anger towards your brother. And I stand by everything I wrote in here about anger. And one of the quotes that stands out to me is from Dallas Willard, who said, uh, this is a paraphrase, anything that you can accomplish with anger can be accomplished better without it. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that. But as I watch what's going on in the country and I talk to African-American friends of mine and, and even reflect on some of my own experiences of racism, given my my mixed background, um I, I, it's pretty hard for me to say to those people, "Hey, you know, you, you're too angry. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you, you need mm. to you need to get the anger out. It's not helpful." I, I, overall, I still believe uh, it's better to do things without anger than with it. But I think a more nuanced conversation about anger, I would try to incorporate that into this book mm. and mm. figure out what. I mean, I believe there is such a thing as righteous anger. I just don't trust myself with it. Mm. Um, mm. And I see a lot of anger right now. And I, I think it's totally justified. I'm just worried that it's not going to accomplish what people hope it will. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. I don't want to tell them not to be angry.
1: Yeah. Back to the Sermon but, on the Mount, right?
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So that, that, I'm wrestling with that still. And I think I would, would have wrestled with that more if I were writing the book right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Sky, I feel like there's, um, you know, kind of shifting the conversation just a bit, but uh, I've been in conversations with uh, pastors around the country in the last few weeks. And um, yeah, between Church Inc. uh, conversations, between conversations about just feeling exhausted, conversations about trying to manage anger, their own anger of others. Um, How might you want to encourage pastors who feel like stuck uh, in a church ink situation or feeling overwhelmed by the reality of everything going on in the world? Um, Like how would you want to encourage them in this season right now?
2: Um, Two things come to mind. One is uh, cultivate whatever you need in your life to remind yourself that your value is not determined by your ministry. So. I think we get exhausted and this is true of not just ministry. It's true of any vocation. It's true of parenting. It's when we attach our value and significance to the outcomes of a particular calling of ours, it's a recipe for both idolatry and disappointment. So as a pastor, I know there's a lot on your shoulders right now and a lot of exhaustion, but the way to guard your soul is to detach your value from it and Mm -hmm. cultivate a deeper Um, connection to the fact that you are a child of God that's Mm. first and foremost. The second one is more practical and a little bit more difficult. Um, I I forget who said it, but years ago, somebody said it's almost impossible to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I have found that my ability to think broadly about ministry and even my calling as a minister has been far more rich once my livelihood was not attached to it. I know that Mm -hmm. sounds kind of counterintuitive, but uh, I'm not telling every pastor, like, quit your job, leave your church, go work at Starbucks or something. But the degree to which you are financially dependent upon the system that you are critiquing, the less you're likely to critique it. Mm. And change it. And I know this cannot happen overnight, but I think one of the the systemic rethinkings we have to employ here is how do we how do we begin to cultivate uh, financial security for ministers apart from the people they're called to minister to? Mm. Mm. And that's where bi vocational ministry I think needs to uh, gain traction. It is, and I think it needs to grow uh, more creative sources of funding. I remember. As a seminary student, I was at church with my dad, who's not a believer. I think it was like a Christmas Eve service. And right after the service, my dad turned to me and said, how can I believe anything that pastor just told us? And I said, well, you know, I'm in seminary. I know the Bible. I can tell you what he said is good. It's it's fine. He's like, no, no, no. My, my dad said, my point is all of you people here in this congregation pay his salary, right? I said, yeah. And he said, and you guys could fire him anytime, right? And I said, Yes. And he said, so what incentive does he have to tell me anything other than what I want to hear? Mm. Wow. And here's this non-believer in the church realizing there's something broken in the system that disincentivizes the, the leader from saying necessary things because it's a system in which they're rewarded for telling, particularly in ears, essentially. Mm. And I don't think that's what all pastors do, but the ability to to regain our prophetic witness, our moral authority, I think partly has to do with the economic systems that we are beholden to. Mm. And if that's on your mind as a church leader, I think it's worth praying about. I think it's worth talking about. and I think it's worth putting in a plan, a place that may take years, but one that gives you more flexibility from the, that economic um, restraint that you're under. And I've seen this multiple times where pastors know what needs to happen or what know what needs to be said, not just pastors, but nonprofit leaders of all sorts. And they mm-hmm. don't because of the implications for themselves and their mm-hmm. families. And, and it's a terrible place to be in. But I think that's one of the things that causes them so much stress.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. two
2: ways out of it. You either capitulate or you figure out how to become less financially dependent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating.
0: And I guess maybe the hope is that if the church uses this time and season that we've been granted to rethink everything, Um, And to put uh, ministry in the hands of the laity, um, maybe there is a really hopeful opportunity for pastors to recognize their job as lead equippers, um, as, you know, leaders from not from the perspective of just sermon oriented, but leaders from the perspective of caring, shepherding, pastoring and helping to call people into truth uh, and truth through love. I think it'd be really powerful, but yeah, appreciate those, those thoughts, guy. Those are really, those are helpful. And I'm sure like there's a lot of pastors right now listening, like, yeah, there's something I really want to say, but I know that that (laughs) big donor sitting in the front row you know, is going to really disagree with it or, or it'll it'll be impacting, um, Mm -hmm. later. So yeah, I appreciate those thoughts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Final question for you, Sky, before we let you go, what projects are you working on right now? I know the book is out, which is really exciting, but, uh, if you're comfortable to share what's rolling around in your mind and your heart these days of what's, whether it's on paper, whether it's a video, what projects you're working on? You're pretty excited about these days.
2: I'm always working on my daily devotional with God Mm -hmm. daily. So that's, that's just a constant output for me right now. We're in a series about uh, Jesus parables. And I think probably in the fall, I've been studying up and noodling on a new series about uh, the Lord's supper and communion and kind of just the table in general as a theme throughout the Bible. Um, I started writing a new book a couple months ago, which tentatively is titled American Christian. Mm-hmm. which is about a lot of issues of identity and what does faithfulness look like uh, you know, in our pluralistic culture. And I felt a lot of resonance, JR, with your new book. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, as I was, I'm was, a couple chapters into writing that and then the world exploded. <laughs> yeah. And when you're trying to write a book about what does it mean to be a, a Christian in contemporary society and you feel like society is this etch-a-sketch that just got shooken up and you don't know what where everything's going to land, I, I just had to put that project on hold like I've come back to that once I can see where some of the pieces land and where we are. Um, so, like you said, you, you you write stuff and it's months in advance before it ever sees an audience. And when I'm trying to write something timely, you can't write now. It's just mm-hmm. there's too many unknowns. But that's what's on my mind, and a lot of that has to do with identity. And um, I'm trying to just explore more of what what I learned, good and bad, from coming from a mixed ethnic background,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and. And meshing that with some sociological data and research and thinking that's been done by brilliant people about the instinct in our society today to reduce everybody to a single identity.
0: Mm.
2: And what does it mean to hold multiple identities all at once? And how does that make us kind of fully incarnate people with many dimensions and what would it mean for us to view each other that way, to view our brothers and sisters in Christ that way, to view people who are different from us that way, particularly in a in a country whose whose motto is supposed to be e pluribus unum, mm. but we don't really live that way. So that's those are the issues that are on my mind. identity and diversity and pluralism and, and what does a 21st century faithful Christian look like? So mm. we'll see mm. if anything comes of it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you again, Skye. It's great to have you back on the podcast and uh, thanks for your contribution. And uh, really thank you too for writing the book. We're really grateful for that. And uh, again, as a visual learner, I'm really excited about yeah. those uh, those visuals because that's how I learn. And uh, But always great to have you on. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: You too, guys. Thank you.
1: Doug, it it was great having Sky back on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast, wasn't it? Felt like we came full circle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. From episode or season one, episode two to now season four, episode two. It's kind of cool. And I love what Sky's doing. I'm glad he's still writing. He's still speaking. He's kind of a pastor and prophet at the Mm. same time. I've always felt that about Sky. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate the way he, he, I feel like he has a very good voice as it comes to understanding culture and how culture is shaping us and how the church needs to respond. I just, I, I really appreciate his voice in, uh, especially in this season right now. So yeah. So what are some things that stuck out to you?
1: Yeah, I I just overall I just love the way he speaks in. It's never vindictive, but it's mm. always provocative and I think that tone no matter what the topic may be is has always been incredibly incredibly helpful. I love how he said, I mean he I've been saying all along uh it, Learning from a pandemic is a terrible thing to waste. I had no idea about that Ram and Emanuel quote from 2008. Like That's fascinating. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. I agree. And I just love that he's challenging us. It was really helpful for me to think about the three categories that he presented. Mm. Denial, short-term quick fixes... And then long-term systemic changes. And, and that was really, I guess I've felt that, but I've never heard that articulated like that in those three categories. That was really helpful for me. I found that to be uh, uh, just a good framework of which to operate. And even how I interact with other people of asking myself, where, by what point of view are they speaking from as a church leader?
0: Yeah, seriously, that was really helpful for me too because I think my well I know for me personally I I kind of I feel like that second place of what are the short-term quick fixes um so much of the last 3 months with everything has been really geared around that but it feels like the most significant work is saying what is the long view ahead, and how does this, this how does this change our orthodoxy or orthopraxis? You know, orthodoxy doesn't necessarily change, but orthopraxis needs to change drastically. And it almost felt like I, I think what I appreciate about his tone is it's not this doom and gloom, but it's this invitational. Um, yeah, I mean, like what could happen? And, and I love the way he framed that too, given the resources and tools of what we have right now, what's the most faithful way to make disciples of Jesus?
1: Yeah, that was a great, and I love that he prefaced it that way, given mm-hmm. the tools and resources available to us. That's that's great because we can't do it all. Mm. But what with what we have, how do we steward it well? That was a great question. Yeah, what else stuck out to you,
0: Doug? Yeah, uh, I I mean the churching stuff is just always fascinating to me. I feel like in in a lot of ways, uh, just recently I had a question with with a young leader who who's working uh, at a, at a at a church where they're just really struggling through performance-based stuff. We need to perform better. We need to have this, and this needs to be a little more polished. And I don't think there's anything uh, – there are some things that I feel are wrong with that, but I, I think this is just – this is more of the same conversation that just has continued to happen. So I think, too, just realizing in this uh, in this season, I feel like there is this temptation to say, how do we make everything pretty and good when in reality we have to just continue to, to – to drive for authenticity to strive towards opportunities to to continue to point people to Jesus and to realize that yeah maybe our leaders right now the greatest thing we can offer is we're not really sure what this next thing is going to look like but we're going to learn we're going to lean in and we're going to continue to love people and just and just say like lord we trust you and and i think that's and this is probably a little bit different but even just i had this thought as you were saying like the holy spirit the father and the son are not surprised by this. Like this isn't mm. surprising to them. And so I feel like even that gave me just, just a good, just some good things to think about mm. um, and to process mm. on my own. Mm. I appreciated how he talked about um,
1: how he might word things differently or, or maybe add some things about anger. Mm. Um, but that haunting question still remains with me. And I think it should remain with all of us. The title of the book what if Jesus was serious, right? Isn't that the discipleship question? What if Jesus was serious? Even as he's talking, it makes me want to go back and reread the sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven, uh, just to be reminded of that. He does take it seriously and he wants us to take it seriously. And, um, I'm so glad he included the emphasis at the end there on building our house on the, the, the rock or on sand. And, uh, yeah, Jesus was serious about listening and doing uh, with what we have. So, yeah, I to leave uh, our listeners with some resources and then some questions here. So a couple of things. We mentioned the book, Immeasurable. Uh, that's, that's number one, that we recommend that book. I, I endorse that book. I highly recommend that book. Um, we have, of course, his, his most recent book that just came out just a week or two ago, What If Jesus Was Serious? And we we want to uh, recommend that highly. Those drawings, seriously, those drawings are fantastic. Uh, and then we uh, also want to encourage you to go back to season one, episode two, uh, of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where you can hear our first guest that we had uh, on the on the episode uh, there uh, on the podcast. Uh, speaking of podcasts, he and Phil Vischer, the founder of VeggieTales. They host a very popular podcast we mentioned during his bio, the Holy Post podcast with Phil Vischer, and uh, we highly recommend that. It's a great podcast. I enjoy hopping on that um, and listening to that. And then also, he talked about his with God uh, daily devotions uh, that he uh, that he has on that, and you can find that out on his website skyjatani slash with dash God dash daily. We'll make sure we put all these in the show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, Sky Jatani. It looks like Jathani, but it's pronounced Jitani. S-K-Y-E-J-E-T-H-A-N-I. SkyJitani.com. You can find out all the resources there. Doug, what would be some uh, questions that we can have here?
0: Yeah. Great question, JR. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, yeah. I, the, the questions that are really stirring in me, first one is this, uh, what has the season stirred up in you personally? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think this is a great opportunity just to journal through that. Um, one of the things that I know you've been doing, JR, I've been doing uh, probably not as much as you have, but I try weekly to just journal like what what's happening right now? What are the mm-hmm. thoughts? What are the emotions? What are the feelings? Um, what are the actual current events? But just what is this stirring up in you? And just to pay attention to that. Uh, second question if Jesus were to write you a letter today, what would he say determines your value? Um, and I would, would encourage you to actually write a letter from Christ to yourself and uh just to, to reflect on that. And then the last one I think is just really great and it's stealing the the, the title um of Sky's new book. What if Jesus was serious? I think mm. that's a great question to sit with, um, mm. especially as uh, for many of us, as we as we have just started the sermon prep process for this upcoming week. Um, what if Jesus was serious with the text that we're getting ready to teach this week? So, um, and yeah, and just to just to send us out today, um, I just wanted to um, just wanted to to bless you with the beatitudes. I feel like it's just super appropriate. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So brothers and sisters, as you go, may you be reminded that you are a blessed people.